One of the more popular Christmas songs of the modern era was one that was written in the mid-20th century during a great time of peace, or of stress rather, uh, and uncertainty. In fact, it was anything but a time of peace. It was October of 1962. Many of you lived through that very tense time where it was found out by uh, our president and administration officials that the Russians were stockpiling defensive and offensive ballistic missiles 90 miles off the coast of Florida in Cuba. It became known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. And never before or since have we been closer to the threat of thermonuclear war than we were during that period. Tensions were sky high. Children in school were being taught uh, what to do in response to a nuclear drill. Uh, Those were very shaky times, and it was with that as a backdrop that an otherwise unknown songwriter penned the lyrics to what is today a very popular Christmas song. You know it, don't you? Do you hear what I hear? It was made popular by... Bing Crosby, who I think sold a billion copies of that record, but it's been recorded hundreds of times by all manner of singers ever since. It was written intentionally by the songwriters as a plea for peace in those very testy times. It urged everyone, if you listen to the lyrics very closely, it urges everyone to slow down and to listen. Do you hear What I hear, a song, a song, high above the trees with a voice as big as the sea. That's a plea to listen for what was really important, really the only thing that could bring about peace in very troubled times. And that, of course, is none other than the Prince of Peace himself. And as the song climaxes, he will bring us goodness and light. You know, the message of the gospel is still a song that's being sung and a song that reverberates high above the trees with a voice as big as the sea. The problem is, then as now, people don't always hear it. They're not always listening for it. Particularly at Christmas time, it's easy to get caught up in the hubbub, in the helter and in the skelter, in the comings and goings, in all of the flash and the glitz and the glitter and miss what is the most important part of Christmas, which is the most important part of the gospel. And that is the Messiah, the one who came into the world to give to us and to provide for us the very thing that we needed most of all, which is salvation and deliverance. Did you know that this is the message, the very message that we find in the 50th chapter of Isaiah? The great prophet, one of the wonderful super geniuses of all time that God used to write one of the most influential books, the book of Isaiah, that's ever been penned in all of ancient literature. The very message of the prophet is that there is a source of goodness and a source of light. He's declaring that message to a chosen nation, the nation of Israel. It's a very backslidden nation. They're in a condition of bondage that's a result of their own stubbornness. But he wants them to know that in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their bondage, in the midst of the exile that was to come, that God has not forgotten them and that God and God alone has the power 
to deliver them from everything that would hold them hostage and everything that would press them down and everything that would keep them from becoming everything that God had created them to be. The prophet tells them how here in verse one that they could find goodness and light through the powerful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only question that would remain is were they willing to listen? And the question on the table today is are you willing to listen to that song, that song high above the trees with his voice as big as the sea? Let's take a look at our text this morning. We're gonna read the whole chapter. Isaiah 50 in the first 11 verses. Those of you that are able, would you stand together with me as we honor the reading of the holy, authoritative, all-powerful, all-sufficient word of the living God. Thus saith the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold. And for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Verse four, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, <clears throat> the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Father, we thank you today for the powerful message of the gospel. And we're reminded with these last words for those of us who reject the goodness and light that comes from the saving power of the one who alone can deliver, the Lord Jesus Christ, that there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of judgment. There will be some who lie down for an eternity in torment, but it doesn't have to be that way. The bearer of light is the one who gives light and he alone has the power to save. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room or watching online this morning that does not have the assurance that when this life is over, they will go into the eternity of everlasting life. I pray that the day would be the day that they trust Jesus to do what only he can, save them and deliver them 
for all eternity. May it be so, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, church family. You may be seated. Well, if you don't already know, this is what we call a messianic prophecy. Have you ever read a whole messianic prophecy before? This is one of the lengthier ones that we find in the Bible. In particular, theologians call this one of the servant songs of Isaiah. We refer to the servant there in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? And therefore, these servant songs that you find in the latter chapters of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 44 all the way to the final one that's in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 may well be the most important chapter in all of the Old Testament. And it talks about the intense suffering of the servant of the Lord which is a foreshadowing of the suffering of the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. This particular text in Isaiah 50 is the third of the four servant songs, these extended messianic prophecies that come from the pen of the prophet Isaiah. And the overarching theme, as with the Christmas song, is the theme of hearing and listening. We're not so quick to do that when it comes to to the message of scripture, to the message of the gospel. But what Isaiah does is he paints a very stark contrast, if you were noticing closely as we were reading. It's a contrast between the nation of Israel, who would not listen to God, and the coming of this messianic servant deliverer who listened to everything God the Father had to say and made it his mission in life not only to listen to his Father, but to obey the word of the Lord all the way to his suffering and death. The contrast couldn't be more clear. And the end result in this chapter is what we might call the gospel according to Isaiah. That's what we just read. It's a synopsis of the gospel of God based and focused upon a coming deliverer we read the New Testament, and the New Testament writers have us looking back. Isaiah the prophet has us looking forward, both from the New Testament looking back and from the prophet Isaiah looking forward, we're looking to the same person, the same cross, the same deliverer, the same precious Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel according to Isaiah, declared 700 years before Christ was ever born. Are you ready to look at it this morning? Would you say amen? I want you to notice with me four very important things that I think God wants everybody to hear and to understand this Christmas season. First, we need to hear and understand the penalty of sin. We need to hear and understand that sin is real and that sin causes death and sin causes separation. In fact, to use Isaiah's terminology with respect to where the nation of Israel was at the time, 700 years before the birth of Christ, sin always leads to a time of exile. That was true for the nation. It's true for you. Sin separates us from a holy God. Isaiah's looking ahead to a time the nation of Israel hadn't been carted off into Babylonian uh, exile yet, but they would be, and Isaiah knew it from the Spirit of God, and so he's doing a foreshadowing here of what's gonna happen, oh, 150 or 200 years after the time he writes this. And that's exactly what would happen. The nation would not listen. 
They would continue to stiff arm the very spirit of God and to go their own way and live by their own light. And as a result, they would be conquered in 586 BC by the Babylonian king, you remember him, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar would cart them off into captivity and there they would remain for a number of years. And Isaiah is basically forecasting that and it won't be because God is responsible. He wants them to understand clearly you will go into exile. Your sin will break you and it will be because of your own stubbornness. It'll be because of your own obstinacy. The word of the Lord is clear in verse two. God says to them, this is the voice of God, why when I came, was there no man? Why when I called, was there no one to answer? In other words, God wants to know why when he sent all these prophets and all these messengers to warn and confront the people, why did nobody ever seem to be at home? Why did nobody come to the door when my messengers came knocking very clearly to provide for you a clear way out and a clear way to life and a clear way to honor and a clear way to holiness? Israel was defeated and they were eventually sent away because they'd failed to listen to God about the seriousness of sin and they failed to understand how important holiness was to the living God himself. And that's made clear in verse one. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Now their mother, of course, was probably, that was probably a reference to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. You were sent away, and your mother, your precious city, the holy Zion of God there on the bluff, that city was sent away. It was destroyed. It was totally ransacked by the Babylonians. And like most of us, when things go south, like most of us, when we get bad news, like most of us, when uh, things don't always go as we'd planned it, uh, they were quick to blame the Lord because of it. Now, I know nobody here has ever blamed God for anything, right? We tend to blame God for all manner of, of stuff, and God's up there going, why are they blaming me? I'm not responsible for this. You're responsible for this. It's your sin that's got you where you are in life so much of the time. That was the case with the nation of Israel. The burden is on you, God says to his people, and your failure to listen. And when you come all the way to the last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, that's something that Isaiah is going to be beating a drum about all the way through to the rest of the end of this, uh, to the end of this book. Look at Isaiah 66 in verse 4. I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and what chose that in which I did not delight. And you know what? The gospel reminds us that every single one of us in that same boat. You're born in sin, but you're still responsible for your sin because you're a sinner. And, and you're responsible for that. I'm responsible for that. And nobody can be saved unless and until they come to grips with where they are spiritually and how they got there. Sin is the culprit. Mark it down. Sin always leads to exile. Sin always leads to a time of separation from God. The Apostle Paul will spell that out as clearly as a bell all throughout the letter of Rome, uh, to Romans. He says very familiarly, for all have what? sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. 
Romans 6, the wages of sin is what? Death, Romans 5 and 12, death spread to all men because what? All sin, that's right. All have sinned, the wages of sin is death, eternal exile and separation from God unless we start to listen. Unless we hear the message that God is clearly resounding through his word and through his divine spokespeople. That being clear, sin always carries consequences. Isaiah doesn't want to leave Israel and doesn't want to leave you and he doesn't want to leave me without hope. God has not divorced us. He's not left us. He's not cast us off. There is a way out of the bondage. There is a way back to life. There is a way back to freedom. And it's God himself because of his great love and mercy. When we deserve to be judged and we deserve to be sent away, it's God himself that makes a way back to life. And that means second, that we need to hear and understand not only the penalty of sin, but we need to hear and understand the power of God. Because God has divine power to conquer sin. God has the divine power to lead us out of the bondage. The power that we need to hear and understand specifically is the power of God to save. I love it when we sing the song around here that God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. And that simply means that God has the power to do it. Did you know that you have no power to save yourself? You have no power to save yourself. Most people in the world think they do. And so they make it their mission in life, not to say foolish things like there is no God. That's the most foolish thing the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. That's what the Bible says. But that didn't even make sense. No, most people don't say that. But most people go about the business of claiming that they can get to God by their own merits, that they can just climb a ladder to God. But you can't save yourself. Only God has the power to deliver. And that's something that God declares here to the nation of Israel in verse two. Is my hand shortened? Notice God puts the attention on himself, not on the people. The only thing the people are told to do is to hear, to listen, and then to respond positively as we're gonna see in a minute. They're not told to do anything except to trust the Lord. God is saying here, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Those are rhetorical questions and what's the implied answer to each of those questions? No, God's arm and his hand is not too short and he certainly is not devoid of power to save. I mean, God, you all believe God has ever been as powerful as when this passage was written? all those centuries ago. I'm here to say this morning, God is just as powerful today as he was when he parted the Red Sea. God is just as powerful today as when he destroyed the walls of Jericho. God is just as powerful today as when he caused the sun to stand still. God is Lord. He is on his throne. And let me declare it for all the world to hear. He is mighty to save. The question is, do we hear the song high above the trees with his vo a voice as big as the sea? We'll be, will we be willing to listen? God says, return to me and I will return to you. I will deliver you by the strength of my hand. And the same is true for people today who are spiritually lost, stuck in the bondage of sin, 
Most people today are living in exile and they don't even know it. Or if they know it, they won't even admit it because they're too proud to admit it. It's easy to overlook. But you know what I think the single greatest phrase in the Bible is? I mean the single greatest phrase in the Bible. Here it is. Worth the price of admission today. You know what it is? But God. But God. That's the single greatest phrase in the Bible. Because if that phrase is not in the Bible, we are still hopelessly lost in the bondage of sin. Because you can't climb your way out of it. You can't worm your way out of it. You can't work your way out of it. God has to do something if we're ever to come home from exile. And nowhere does the Bible make that clear more than Paul does in the second chapter of Ephesians. He says there right out of the gate, and you, all y'all, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Can I just say, if you're dead, that's a problem. He doesn't say you were unconscious. He doesn't say you were walking around in a stupor. He doesn't say that you were, uh, what's a, psycho a psychiatrist do with a watch? Hypnotized, that's right. He didn't say that. He didn't say you were hypnotized. I went blank for a minute. I speak for a living, y'all know that. <laughs> he says you were dead, man. D-E-A-D, -E dead man can't do jack. I mean, that sounds like a sophisticated theology right there. Dead man can't do jack, but they can. No, you gotta have God do something for you. Verse four, but God... As for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God. Israel, y'all are obstinate, stiff-necked as a people, determined to go your own way and walk by the torch of your own fire, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. Isn't that good? Man, that's powerful good news right there. That's the gospel. I mean, because of sin, our greatest need is the need to be forgiven. I'm telling you, you may think that your greatest need this Christmas is a Jeep Grand Cherokee. I'm just saying it's not. It's not a diamond ring. It's not a cruise around the Italian peninsula. You may think your greatest need is a bunch of stuff. It is not. Your greatest need, if you haven't been already, is the need for God to forgive you of your sin. I mean, otherwise, the only thing to look forward to is death, grave, and an eternity in hell. Sin is your greatest need, but God. Sin is God's greatest gift. And it comes to us as a gift. He makes it possible by his own power and might. All we have to do is trust him and receive it freely. And that, that's why maybe the greatest cry in Isaiah, the greatest shout from the prophet is the one God himself shouts in Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. But how does God do it? How does God make salvation possible? We need to hear and understand the penalty of sin. We need to hear and understand the power of God. Isaiah says, third, we need to hear and understand the path of deliverance because there's one and only one pathway out. There's only one pathway 
out of exile back to God. And the path of deliverance that God provides for us by his power and might is not military. It's not political. It's personal. He's a God-appointed Savior, referred here by Isaiah as the servant of the Lord. And the question is raised, well, who in the wide world is that? Well, I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count. Who is that? Well, if you really understand the general flow of Scripture through the New Testament, it's not difficult at all to determine that Isaiah is referring to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ right here. Just as he is in Isaiah 42, in the very first of these four servant songs, just as he does in Isaiah 49, just as he does in Isaiah 53. These are all references to the coming deliverer, the coming Messiah, the Son of Man, who by Jesus' own testimony in Mark 10, 45, came not to be served, but to what? To serve. Namely, by giving his life as a ransom for many. The beginning here in verse number four, the servant himself begins to speak. You may have noticed that everything goes to the first person. Beginning in verse number four, where it says, the Lord God has given me the tongue. Well, that's not Isaiah speaking. This is Isaiah reflecting the voice of the God-appointed servant that is to come as deliverer, as savior, to bring the nation of Israel out of its condition of bondage. And so we have the servant speaking to us in the first person. And as he does, he describes himself. Jesus is describing himself in Isaiah chapter 50. Three very important ways he describes himself that provide important clues that help us to understand the identity of who this deliverer is. First, we find that he's an obedient servant. What kind of servant is talking to us here? Well, he's an obedient servant. Look at verse four. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not what? Rebellious. I turned not backward. In other words, I heard the plan of God. I heard the voice of the Lord. I was led by the very spirit of God. I understood what was required of me. And I made a decision to embrace it and turn not away from it. So the Messiah is presented here as somebody that listens closely to God. It's somebody that's totally given to the word of God, well-schooled in the ways of God. Did you know that's exactly the way Jesus is presented in the Gospels? You remember when Jesus got lost and separated from his parents when he was about 12 years old. Only Luke tells us that story. His parents had gotten way away. They'd, they'd started the journey back to Galilee. And they noticed at some point along the way that their son was not with them. I mean, and they both knew who this son was because they'd been told by angels who they were. But they're, I, I don't know, I guess Joseph and Mary making their Christmas list. I don't know. They didn't know where the boy was. When they went all the way back to Jerusalem, they find him. Where did they find him? In the temple, at the feet of the teachers, learning and discussing the deep things of God. Did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? Luke makes it very clear that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. He heard the word of the Lord, and then he began to faithfully declare the word 
of the Lord, speaking and preaching the message of life to all who would hear. Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at John 12 and 49. For I have this Jesus speaking, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself or has himself given me what to say and what to speak. This, by the way, is why Jesus often separated himself from his family and his disciples to get off alone, to go into the mountains, to spend time in prayer alone with his heavenly Father. Why in the world did God the Son do that? Because he had but one purpose, which was to hear from the Father so that he might faithfully do the will of God. Jesus also said in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Christ was a hearing, listening, obedient servant. But then second, we see that he's a suffering servant. He's a suffering servant. Now, this is made even more clear in, in the fourth of these four servant songs in Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected of men and so forth and so on. But you see a foreshadowing of that suffering here in Isaiah chapter 50, beginning in verse six. I gave my back to those who strike. That makes sense to everybody this morning? You get a picture of the Christ who was flogged at the whipping post at penalty of Pontius Pilate. Behold, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Behold, who will declare me guilty? Which was Jesus' way of saying that he was innocent of all of the charges leveled against him. Something that was confirmed multiple times, not only by Christ, but by Pilate. I find no guilt in this man. And yet in spite of that, the servant deliverer savior was struck, mocked, insulted, spit upon, beaten, and scourged. He was a suffering servant, fully obedient to the plan and to the purpose of God, even, the Bible says, to the death of the cross. But in the face of suffering, we see third that Christ is a confident servant. He didn't turn back. He didn't cower. He didn't run away in fear. He's a confident servant. He didn't retreat. He walked into the suffering, knowing it full well, with his eyes wide open. He was like those Marines and soldiers who stormed Normandy there at D-Day. They approached the beaches in those Higgins boats, and those in the first wave knew when that front door flew open. They were going to be subjected to all manner of heavy caliber machine gun fire, and they knew it was coming, and they stormed the beaches anyway. So with Jesus, he was determined to accomplish his mission. He says here in verse 7, but the Lord God, what? Helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I've, wow, I love this. I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. May I ask you a question? Did God vindicate the Lord Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form on the other side of the cross? Let's call it an empty tomb. God vindicated him by raising him from the dead three days later. This prophecy is spot on from the lips of Isaiah. 
Now, it's not at all hard to see that the servant of Isaiah 50 is the very Savior of the cross of Calvary. The path of deliverance both for the nation as well as for the nations, plural, is Jesus Christ. May I make a statement? Only Christ can save you from the consequences of your sin. Only Christ can deliver you safely from exile back to the life-giving presence of God, which is why Jesus said the most controversial thing that our Savior ever said in his life, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to God the Father except through me. Did you know that's why Christmas matters right there? That's why we celebrate. That's what it's all about. And it's why Christ, this Christmas and forevermore, is God's greatest gift of all. Well, are you with me so far? Would you say amen? amen. We need to hear and understand some very important things this morning. We need to hear and we need to understand the penalty of sin, the power of God, the path of deliverance. And then finally, we need to hear and understand the proper response. And there is only one response. The proper response is a priority response. The servant always demands a response. The gospel always demands a response. And there's only one, response, uh, one priority response, but there are two possibilities, and Isaiah gives us both possibilities here. The first is to obey the servant and live. That's the first potential response to the gospel. Verse 10, who among you fears the Lord? Who among you obeys the voice of the servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This is Isaiah's invitation right there. There it is. It's a gospel invitation. Who's gonna hear the voice of the Lord today? That's great, but who's gonna respond to it? Who's gonna to respond to it with trust? Who's gonna to respond to it with obedience? Who's gonna to respond to the eternal light that Jesus is? Christ came, the Bible says, as a light shining in darkness. Man, we celebrate lights. I'm supposed to go with my family to, tonight and uh, drive through the lights because Christmas is about the light. So we drive through lights and we put them all over our Christmas tree and we decorate the facades of our homes with them and we top our Christmas trees with bright shining stars. We read Christmas stories that reminds us of the magi who were guided to the presence of the Christ child by that dramatic celestial navigational light. Christmas is about the light of Christ and that's who he is. And you've got to respond to that light. And the proper response to the light is to trust the light by following the light. Man, trust is the key to success in every dimension of life. You will live as a hermit if you don't learn how to trust. You've got to learn how to trust your doctor. You've got to learn how to trust your mechanic. You've got to learn to trust your lawyer. You've got to learn to trust your teachers. You've got to learn to trust your pastor. You've got to learn to trust all kinds of people. We've got to learn to trust husbands and wives, 
You don't learn how to trust, you will not be a success in life. Trust is the key to success in life. And nowhere is it ever more important than as it relates to spiritual matters. The only right response to the gospel is a trusting response to the light of the gospel who is Jesus Christ, the light who came shining in the darkness, the Christ who himself said about himself, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of everlasting life. That's the priority response. Tragically, however, most tend to reject the light of Christ. And you know what most people will do? They will manufacture their own light. That's what most people do. They'll manufacture their own light and they'll light their own torch. But the prophet makes clear that you can either obey the servant and live or you can respond in the second potential way. You can live by your own wisdom and die. You can obey the servant and live or you can live by your own wisdom and die. Look at verse 11. Response number two, behold all you who kindle a fire. See, there's a big difference between responding to the light and kindling your own fire. Behold all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. And this is sarcasm here. It's almost like Isaac, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead on. Walk by the light of your fire. Go ahead and do it. Walk by the torches that you have kindled. And then the stark reality, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. You see the sarcasm there? The consequences of that kind of self-centered response. A person who chooses to live by their own light, to walk according to their own wisdom, will be devoured by their own pride and they'll end up being burned by their own torch. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it only leads to what? It only leads to death. I love this passage of scripture. Do you see the gospel? According to Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 50, it's a very clear picture of the good news of God's saving, God's delivering grace. My task this morning is to make sure that you're hearing what I'm hearing from God's word. So may I ask it again? Do you hear what I hear? That the penalty of sin is exile and death. Do you hear that the power of God can bring restoration and deliverance? Do you hear that the path of deliverance is the one and only suffering servant, delivering savior sent from God to die on a cross? And do you hear that the only proper response is to trust in his name and to trust in his work and to follow his light? Because then and now, the light of Christ is the only way home.